This is Anthony Anarino, and you're listening to In the Arena. I like most about text message is that no matter what, you know that the person that you sent the text message to received the text message. Even if they're not getting back to you, you do know that they read it and you know that they're aware that you're pursuing them or that you have something you need to share with them. That's not always true for email. And in fact, I find that when I send an email, I have this great fear that it's now at the very bottom of the inbox because there's been 2,200 emails that have come in after my email was sent. So I want to give a huge shout out to today's sponsor, MailTag.io. MailTag.io is a Chrome browser extension for your Gmail that allows you to track and schedule your emails. It's super helpful, and I highly recommend it if you're in sales, specifically because you receive real-time alerts on your desktop as soon as your prospect opens your emails or clicks on a link within your email. And that problem I described here at the beginning, you don't know whether or not they saw the email because there's so much incoming for most of us that we can't keep up with the email. In this case, you can set up a follow-up sequence so that another email goes out if there's not a response, and it will literally push your email back to the top of that inbox. So important right now when so many of us live in our inbox and where it's so difficult to get attention. So go check out mailtag.io. You'll find the link in the show notes and take advantage of the 14-day trial. You may not know this about me, but at one point in time, I went to law school. And when I went to law school, I was introduced to all kinds of ideas, many of which I disagreed with, and many of which were provocative enough for me to spend time looking into. And law school is a very, very political environment. Because you're studying constitutional law and policy, there's a lot of arguments. And one thing that I was introduced to was a book called The Armchair Economists, Economics and Everyday Life by an author named Stephen E. Landsberg. And it is certainly contra to what you would call the common thinking about economics. It was followed up by a book called The Big Questions. And that was a book about philosophy and mathematics and physics in the style that only Landsberg can do, which you're going to get to listen to in just a minute. After that, Landsberg wrote a book entitled More Sex is Safer Sex, another provocative book with amazing ideas, some of which we'll get into in the podcast especially around how to keep juries honest and maybe politicians honest as well. His new book, however, is called Can You Outsmart an Economist? A Hundred Puzzles to Train Your Brain. It's a new book and it made for a difficult interview because it's not very straightforward. It is literally full of thought exercises that you can use to sort of understand some of your biases as you think and some of the things that get you into trouble. I am honored to be able to interview Landsberg because he is a unique thinker with a very, very deep look at things that when you listen to will strike you as shocking sometimes and odd sometimes and funny sometimes because he is funny. But this book was a book of puzzles. So we worked really hard to give you something here to work with and to try to demonstrate some of our cognitive biases. This is Steven Landsberg in the arena.
Stephen, thanks so much for being here. I am a longtime fan of your work. The Armchair Economist should be mandatory reading for all human beings, probably in high school or at least in college. And more sex is safer sex. I don't know if I want any kids to read that in college, but I do think people should read that at some point. Well, those are very kind words. I do appreciate them. (laughs) Tell me about your new book, Can You Outsmart an Economist? And I think I might try to do that here, but it may be just for entertainment purposes here. Well, this is a book of 100 or closer to 150 actually puzzles and brain teasers, which are meant to be fun in the way that puzzles and brain teasers are, but many of which, most of which actually teach you something about economics, the way economists think, or how to interpret data, how to interpret statistics, how to read the news a little more wisely. They are puzzles and brain teasers with instructional morals. And they're hard. Some of them are pretty hard. I think so. I want to tell you a quick story. I was in a workshop in Washington, D.C., and a lot of people in the workshop, it was around business development, but they were predominantly engineers. And I was talking about the fact that when a company releases a request for proposal, they have a scorecard that they build in a spreadsheet so that they can weight certain factors in certain ways and decide what the best decision is. But they're really not being objective. In my view, once you decide to weight something, you've started to put a value decision around it. So it's really still subjective, or it can be. And my premise was that human beings are not rational. Rather, we're really good at rationalizing after the fact. And you might say we're not good at either one of those. But he argued with me and he said, no, human beings make objective decisions and they're rational. And so I challenged him to share with me the spreadsheet he used when he chose his wife. And and what the categories were and how many samples, you know, how many particular options did he look at? And he looked at me and said, I didn't do that. She chose me. And then I said, so now we know who the irrational person is in this story. And he still didn't get it. And he was so stuck on this. But then he went to lunch and he walked by me with a big sandwich and he said, I'm eating the paleo diet and I really shouldn't be eating this bread. I just really want it. And then he smiled at me because he started to understand how much of his decisions are irrational. Just give me your view on, a lot of people think that we're rational. Most of us think we're being rational when we make decisions, but we're not very rational. We are, of course, not very rational in all sorts of ways. And there have been Nobel Prizes in economics recently for Dick Thaler and before that for Dan Kahneman, for people who have thought hard about the ways in which people are irrational. So you don't want to just say people are irrational and then throw up your hands and say we can't predict them. You you want to say people are irrational in predictable ways, and you want to sort of map out what those predictable ways are. On the other hand, there is a rational component to human behavior, and I think economists are particularly good at predicting the way the rational part of our brains are instructing us to behave. We don't always follow that part of our brains, but I just want to say, because you brought up the example of picking your spouse, that's a case where the logic of rationality has this tragic effect, because if you are perfectly rational when you choose your spouse, if you list all those criteria, and make your wisest possible choice based on those criteria, you are going to make mistakes in your estimates of the extent to which people meet those criteria. And those mistakes, you know, on average, some people you'll overestimate, some people you underestimate. Who do you end up marrying? You end up marrying the person you overestimated the most. That's the person you probably ranked highest. And so you're setting yourself up for disappointment. 
<laughs> now we know why the divorce rate is so high. Exactly. And this applies not just to marriage, unfortunately, but to anything where you rank candidates and make a choice. The person who today is listening to this podcast because they thought about all the podcasts they could have listened to, and this was the one they chose, the fact that they chose it means it's the one they're most likely to have overestimated the quality of. <laughs> so life is full of disappointments in every area. This one, we will meet their expectations here somehow, no matter how hard we have to work. That is so funny. You know, I grew up in temporary staffing and for the first five years of my life, I interviewed people and I tried to follow all of the best guidance I could follow on that. And at some point, I think my gut and my subjective view of this was better than anything objective. It was sort of after interviewing 40 people a day for five years some part of me picked something up that said, this is the right choice and this is the wrong choice, but I couldn't for the life of me tell you how I was picking. Well, you know, there are thankfully parts of your brain that do a lot of really rational and sensible thought for you without your being aware of what they're doing. And again, I think economists are particularly good at predicting what that part of your brain at least is going to tell you to do. Do you look at this, the brain as sort of this paleo, you know, inherited thing? Do you think that all of that sort of subconscious stuff is what's driving all of these irrational decisions? Well, every or decision. Not all of it, but at least some of them. Every decision we make is driven by our brains in one way or another. I think our brain is probably full of competing agents. There's a lot of political economy going on inside your brain with different parts of your brain struggling for power. And from time to time, one part of your brain grabs the mic away from another part of your brain and starts telling you what to do. I think there is a lot of interesting economics that goes into trying to model the way the brain works as a bunch of competing agents competing for resources. And one of the resources is control over the decisions that you're going to make. How much of that do you believe is subconscious? I know we're conscious of what we're conscious of, but it seems like a lot of things, like my friend getting the sandwich, that wasn't a conscious decision he made. It was, I think, more subconscious. Yeah. I, of course, have no professional expertise on this, but just based on the the reading that I do of popular sources and so on, it seems to me that tremendous fraction of it is subconscious. Yeah, that's scary. I want to, maybe the best way for us to do this is to do a little bit of work from the book. And I would try to be the subject here. So I will try to be rational. And maybe we go through a couple of scenarios in the book to see how well I do. And I just picked one by looking at something that related to me. So I started with the law school admission test as a potential. You want to share that, what the law school entrance exam is, at least the prompt at the beginning? Sure. Let me just open my copy of the book here to remind myself we're talking about the very beginning of that chapter. Yeah, we're talking about two urns, one with 70% white balls and 30% black balls, and an urn to the right of it with the opposite. So 70% black balls and 30% white. So we've got one ball that's 70 white and 30 black, one that is 70 black and 30 white. I am going to pick one of these urns randomly. I flip a coin to pick one of the urns and I reach into that urn and I pull out a dozen balls. When I pull out a dozen balls, four are white and eight are black. So let me first ask the easy question. I reached into one of the two urns. I pulled out 12 balls, four are white and eight are black. Do you think it's more likely I drew from the predominantly white urn or from the predominantly black urn? The predominantly black urn. The predominantly black urn. And what probability, how sure are you of that? Let's put it in these terms. Would you say that I drew from the black urn beyond a reasonable doubt? (laughs) Yes. And I have no, the only thing I'm thinking is, is that there's still 
a hundred black balls and a hundred white balls, although they're distributed differently in each one of those. So I'm thinking that there's two thirds of black balls and one or 70, 30 rather. So that's got to be the right one. So I'm going to say beyond a reasonable doubt. Well, that's great. And most people get that wrong. Most lawyers get it wrong. It is in fact 98% sure (laughs) that you drew from the black urn. And remember, you only got two thirds black balls and one third white, but that is enough to make it 98% sure that you drew from the black urn. I think we expect juries to convict on a 98% certainty all the time. So by practical standards, that's well beyond a reasonable doubt. Surveys of lawyers, surveys of college students, surveys of other people suggest that most people think it's maybe 60-40 that you drew from the black urn. So you're showing a much better instinct there. Maybe you had a better legal training than most, or maybe you're just smarter than most, or maybe you're just better at this particular problem than most, but most people get that very wrong. I sometimes feel like I'm good at the logic puzzles. I did really well on the law school entrance exam, but Uh then I read your work and I realize so I'm guilty of all of the things that human beings do, like inferring things and making predictions. Because I know some of your work, I want to just ask for your commentary on this. So if you were to improve the judicial system, because I'm going back to more sex is safer sex. I know you actually solved all of the world's problems in that book. And people <laughs> don't know that, but you have thoughts on politics and they're irreverent and they're rational if you go through it as an economist. But how would you improve the, the ability for juries to make a good decision here? There are so many possible improvements there. And one thing I've suggested a little lightheartedly is that any juror who votes for conviction ought to be required to let the defendant spend a week in his living room. <laughs> that, that will certainly cause the jurors to pay somewhat better attention to whether this is the kind of guy that went out on the streets. Now, that, of course, creates an incentive to convict everybody. We don't want to do that. And so we have to have a countervailing incentive that you get a, if you do end up housing the guy in your living room for a week, you get a big cash payment for it. <laughs> uh, so there's an incentive to weigh carefully whether you think you want to or not. And so then part of this is it's hard for juries to pay attention. It's hard to evaluate. It is hard for juries to pay attention. And I think, and they're not always incentivized to pay attention. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people go in with very good intentions, but the fact is we have other things on our minds and being human, we tend to let our minds wander toward the things that affect us directly and maybe not the things that are affecting other people's lives in very important ways. I do think there are things you could do to encourage jurors to pay better attention. One of them would be to give them an objective true or false test at the end of the trial, asking them about who said what on the witness stand and, you know, with prizes for the high scorers, let them know that's going to happen. I bet they'd pay much closer attention. I imagine that would we would be horrified at the result of who said and, what at the end. And, and maybe that would perk us up to some of the problems that we're facing too. If we were to talk about prediction, so I come out of a world in sales where one of the things that's really important for us is to have a forecast that we can rely on. So we are always trying to estimate the likelihood of a client buying as we're in the process. And so I've tried to teach people this in my own clumsy way, and I'll share it with you, and maybe we can pull something out of the book to talk about. But they will say that because the client has had these conversations with us, and clients in the past have had these conversations with us, and we've won 30% of them, that we're at a 30% opportunity of winning. Or in some cases, they'll say, because they've gone all the way through the process, we're at a 90% win rate. And then I'll look at it and say, is there another competitor still in? It's still being considered. And they Mm -hmm. say, yes. Okay, so I have to be at least 50-50, right? 
So yeah, if that other competitor is figuring the same way you're figuring, then you can't both be right. We can't both be right. And so that's a problem. But there's also the possibility that they decide to not do anything right now. So that brings it down even further. To to 30%. And there's also the potential that there may not be, there may be another alternative to what we do that they might be considering too, which would mean maybe we're even as low as 25% when we think we're at 95%. But we make all these predictions and I'm looking at it and going, it's irrational. First off, it's bad math, but it's also not really good thinking because you're not recognizing the risk that you still potentially have of losing and you're committing to it now when there's still maybe three to four different things without having the conversation with the client to know where you are. So tell me about the irrationality there and if you can weave in our poor ability to make predictions. Well, you know, I think one good general point that you really honed in on is that one thing you always want to ask yourself when you're making predictions is, do I have any reason to trust my own opinion more than I trust the opinion of somebody else who has been thinking about this as hard as I have? If somebody else has got uh, has been thinking about it as hard as you have and has a different opinion, there are reasons he's got a different opinion or she's got a different opinion. You don't even need to know what those reasons are to know that you should be worried. <laughs> if you go into an auction and you believe you're absolutely sure that this oil lease that you're bidding on is worth a million dollars. And so you bid a million dollars and you believe it's worth way more than a million dollars. So you bid a million dollars and you win. You'd think you should be happy. But the first thing you should think is, why wasn't anybody else willing to outbid me? They must know something I don't know. This is a very important phenomenon. We call it the winner's curse. And oil companies, when they're bidding on oil leases, always have to restrain themselves and tell themselves that, you know, whatever we think this oil lease is worth, we're only going to win the auction if everybody else disagrees with us. And if they all disagree with us, they're probably right. And there are puzzles in the book in Can You Outsmart an Economist that exploit that. I mean, where you've got some information about something and it's posited that somebody else is pursuing a different course than you are. How do you rationally take account of what you know about what they're doing? And again, you don't even need to know what their reasons are in order to suspect that they've probably got some good reason that you don't know about. This is the part of your work that makes me the most uncomfortable. Like when I think I'm winning, I should be more worried. And that's the part that's disconcerting because you want to be positive about these things. And we started this with talking about the decision of your spouse And so the one that you overestimated is likely the bad decision that you're making, but that's how humans work. Same thing here with our predictions. We're making a prediction. I went to the chapter called How Irrational Are You? And I want to talk through a couple of the scenarios there. These are really, really hard for me. I have an 11% chance to win a million dollars or a 10% chance to win 5 million. I choose B. Okay. Now we'll pause there and I'll say that so far, We have no reason to call you particularly rational or particularly (laughs) irrational. You had an 11% chance to win a million or a 10% chance to win 5 million. It's up to you. You can play either game. If you're a very, very risk-averse person, you could very perfectly rationally choose the first and say, I would like the slightly better chance of winning a million dollars. I have no quarrel with that. Okay. so a different person... As you did, you chose the 10% chance at 5 million. I have no quarrel with that either. It's fine for people to have different tastes. Okay, so I'm still rational at this point. (laughs) At this point, you're still rational. (laughs) Okay, so the second choice is I can have a million dollars for certain, or I can have a lottery ticket that gives me an 89% chance to win a million, 
a 10% chance to win 5 million and a 1% chance to win nothing. So I'm taking B, I'll take the 89% chance to win a million, 10% chance to win 5 million, and the 1% chance to win zero, even though I've added these up to come up with a number that makes me think I'm rational. Well, that actually is rational. Now, most (laughs) people at that point, most people make the same choice you did in the first problem. They take the 10% chance at 5 million over the 11% chance at a million. Most people in the second problem take the sure million. Hmm. And you didn't fall into that trap, but I want to claim that those people are actually irrational. And I'm afraid this might be a little bit too hard to explain over the radio because Mm -hmm. it helps to have some pictures in front of you. But I claim that the person who makes those choices, the person who chooses the 10% chance at 5 million in the first problem and who chooses the sure million in the second problem, I can set up a series of games where if that person (laughs) sticks to the choices that he says he's committed to, I can take all of his money for sure by playing an appropriate series of games. Because they have choices, bias. Either one of which sounds perfectly rational on the... Either one of which is perfectly rational by itself. If you make both of those choices, if you have both of those perfectly reasonable preferences at the same time, I can use that against you and I have a way to take all of your money. Again, it's not too hard to explain. I think it helps though to have a picture in front of you. And so I'll encourage people to go out and buy the book to see how that's done. But it's an example of several things where there are several puzzles where there's a right answer or there's a puzzle where there is no right or wrong answer. It's a matter of preference. Either one can be right. There's another puzzle where, again, the same thing is true. And yet the combinations of answers that you give can be highly irrational. And it pays to understand that because in principle, if you don't understand it, people can take all your money. And I think what I gleaned from our conversation here, which I do think is a difficult concept for people to understand, if I'm biased towards the 11% chance to win 1 million, but then I'm going to choose, you said that's the first choice, right? If they chose, oh, actually you're saying if they took the 10% chance at five in the first one, but then a million for certain in the second one, Right. So So that's the combination that's irrational. And that's the most common combination. That's what most people choose. So it means that if they chose both of those, you know that they're thinking irrationally about the odds. Correct. Okay. And is this how casinos work? Is that how casinos work? Casinos are working off something much, much simpler, I think. Casinos are working off the fact that they're setting up bets where they know that if you play enough times, you're going to lose on average. They don't need to play off two different choices. They're giving you one choice where they're expecting people to make a choice that they're usually going to lose on. I'm going to move us to number five in that particular thing. And I took a look at this, but I didn't take a look at the answers. So I'm forced to play a game of Russian roulette with a six shooter that has two bullets. And I'm looking at the barrel and the two bullets are right at the top. So the next click moves the one to the left into the chamber by looking at it. And the question is, what's the maximum amount I'd be willing to pay to remove both of those bullets before the game starts? And the highest answer I'm allowed to give is all I've got. So I'm going to say all I've got. Perfectly rational answer. Okay. So then the second scenario here is I'm forced to play the game again, and there's four bullets, and only one of the bullets is for sale. And it looks to me like it's the bullet that is going to be next in the chamber. And what's the maximum I'd be willing to pay to remove that one bullet? All I've got. Well, again, the picture may have misled you. We don't know that it's the next one in the chamber. Okay, so we're going to spin gonna come it. Up next in the chamber, we're going to spin it. Uh-huh. I'm still going to pay all I've got. You're still going to pay all you've got. I have no, 
once again, you're doing great. You're giving the rational answers. Most readers, most people in surveys don't give the rational answers to these. What do they answer on this one? Most people would say, if there are two bullets and I get to buy both of them, I'll give either all I've got or a large percentage of all I've got. You might not want to give all you've got because you're going to survive this thing and you want to have some money afterward. So you might put a cap less than all you've got, but all you've got is a perfectly good answer. And then we look at the, again, I fear that it's easier to keep track of this when you got the pictures in front of you. Yeah. But I'm going to try and say it in a way that makes it graphic. You got the gun with four bullets and I'm offering to sell you just one of those bullets. Now, we already discovered... In the gun with two bullets, we found out what you're willing to pay to take two bullets out. In other words, we found out what you're willing to pay to avoid a one-third chance of death. Yeah. With the second gun, with the second gun, I'm going to sell you one bullet out of four. Well, you know, three times out of six, one of the other bullets is going to kill you. And then it doesn't matter what you did. The rest of the time, we're looking at one bullet out of three. That's a one-third chance of death. And so I claim your answer to the second question, if you are rational, ought to be the same as the answer to the first question. Because in the first question, we're asking, what will you pay to avoid a one-third chance of death? And in the second question, we're asking, what will you pay to avoid a one-third chance of death in the event that one of the other bullets doesn't kill you? Those questions should have the same answer. If I ask you what you're willing to pay for something today, if I ask you what would you be willing to pay for something, that same thing, if I tell you that you might die of a heart attack between now and when you buy it. There's no reason that heart attack should change your answer to the question. You're either going to live or die. If you die, your answer doesn't matter. If you live, then you're back in the same situation you were in before. So again, I want to reassure your readers that if you've got the book with the pictures in front of you, it's easier to follow that. But I do claim that the answers that most people give to those questions are either one of them can be rational on its own, but if you combine them, you've got a A good argument, not only that this person is irrational, but that I can use that irrationality against him by devising a game which, if he really sticks to his principles, he's going to want to play and which he's guaranteed to lose. Okay, so I want to try to stay away from politics as much as we can here, only because we'll split people in two right out of the gate on this. But I I do want to do one of the explanations. And that the political economy section of the book starts with a tweet from Matthew Nussbaum from Politico who tweeted, there are around 50,000 coal miners in the U.S., and there are around 520,000 fast food cooks. Coal miners seem to loom a lot larger in our politics. Wonder why. What did the Twitter followers believe was the real reason that the coal miners over-index on attention? What did the Twitter followers believe? I didn't read them all. But if you, if you, look, <laughs> through the, if you look through the Twitter feed, You find a lot of answers that superficially look like they make sense and which don't make any sense at all when you look at them. The fact is that this is what any economist would have predicted for this reason. We're comparing fast food cooks to coal miners. It's easy to start a new fast food restaurant. It's not easy to start a new coal mine. And that is why coal miners have more political clout than fast food cooks. Because if the fast food cooks get together and lobby to improve the conditions of fast food cooks, the main effect of that is that more people are going to want to be fast food cooks. There are going to be more fast food joints opening up and their wages are going to get bid down and everything they gained from whatever legislation they passed through is going to get taken away from them by the new entrants. In coal mining, that doesn't happen so easily because it's not so easy to open a new coal mine. Therefore, if coal miners win political favors, they're going to keep those political favors. In general, what you should expect is that 
people will not lobby hard for political favors that can easily be taken away from them by new entrants to the activity. They will lobby hard when they're pretty sure that entry to the activity is difficult. And so this is probably why, I'm sure it's why, all over the world, farmers have a lot more political clout than the owners of mom and pop grocery stores. It's hard to start a farm. You've got to acquire a large amount of land. It's relatively easy to start a mom and pop grocery store. So we have huge farm lobbies and we have huge subsidies to farmers. We don't see the same kind of huge subsidies to mom and pop grocery stores. People say that the reason for the subsidies to farmers is that we have this sentimental attachment to the family farm, but we also have the sentimental attachment to the mom and pop grocery store, and yet they don't seem to get the same kind of subsidies the farmers do. Yeah, I have a affinity for mom and pop bookstores, and they have absolutely zero. (laughs) Absolutely zero. And again, the reason for that is that if we passed legislation that really, really rewarded bookstore owners, bookstore owners would not gain very much because the main thing you'd see is a lot of new bookstores opening up. And this explanation, can you sum up sort of our poor thinking when we try to explain these kind of things to ourselves? Is it the the irrationality? It's sort of bundled in these categories that you have with predictions and explanations, but is there some way that you can point to the thinking trap that we fall into? I think a lot of times an obvious answer presents itself to us we latch on to that obvious answer and we fail to look beyond the obvious. You know, there's an example in the book where there's a lot of data that show that in college classes, when you ask students to rate the teachers, good-looking teachers get higher ratings consistently. What's the explanation for that? The obvious cheap explanation is that students are shallow, that they reward good looks over teaching skill. A deeper explanation, I think, is that Good-looking people have a lot of career options that ugly people don't have. They can, they're much more effective in retail sales. They can go into acting. They can go into modeling. So a good-looking person who chooses to teach, despite all those other options, is on average a person who really, really likes teaching. The ugly person who goes into teaching may be a person who went into teaching just because there were no other opportunities. So you would expect the good-looking teachers to be better, even if the good looks themselves have no direct bearing on how good you are as a teacher. As I say in the book, you show me a lighthouse keeper with movie star good looks, chances are you're showing me the best lighthouse keeper in the country. (laughs) Because if he had those movie star good looks and went into lighthouse keeping, it's because he's really dedicated to lighthouse keeping. You just described the whole book for people. So you are going to have a shift in your thinking when you read any of Steven Landsberg's books. I would recommend all of them. I would start with armchair economist. And I mean, it's so fundamental for people to start getting this line of thinking. It always reminds me of how poor my thinking is when I read your work. It's always challenging. And it's challenging in a whole bunch of ways. The reading's not challenging, but just having to take a look at what we do here and how irrational we really are. It discloses all of our, I think, poor thinking habits. We get caught into you know recency bias and all these kinds of things without even recognizing it's true for us. Tell me, who do you read? Who do I read? You know, I assume you're asking particularly about economics and things related to economics. Uh, Otherwise, we could go off onto a long tangent. There are several blogs that I follow, none of them perfectly faithfully, but I'm a fan of Marginal Revolution, Tyler Mm -hmm. Allen and Alex Tabarrok. I like Robin Hansen's blog at Overcoming Bias. I like Bob Murphy's blog at Free Advice. David Friedman's blog, I think, is always tremendously insightful. I very much like the blog of the computer scientist, Scott Aronson. He's not particularly 
writing about economics, but he touches on economic topics. And I often disagree with him when he touches on economic topics, but he's very provocative and very thoughtful. Those are the first blogs I turn to on the internet. What about philosophy? Philosophy, I'm a big fan of Dan Dennett. I'm a big fan of Steven Pinker. I do read a fair amount of academic philosophy of sorts that are probably considerably more obscure and less likely to be of interest to your listeners. But I, uh, I, I think Dennett and Pinker are two, you know, obviously very popular authors and deservedly so who write not always on philosophy, but on issues closely related to philosophy and are well worth following. Also, Jamie White. If your listeners don't know Jamie White. I don't know Jamie White. W-H-Y-T-E, fantastic writer on topics of, he is trained as an academic philosopher. He won awards for writing the best philosophy paper of the year several years ago, but now has worked in the banking industry, has a lot of real world experience with economics. And so he brings that perspective. Fantastic writer, brilliant writer, always with something tremendously interesting to say. I would, with tremendous enthusiasm, I recommend J.D. White to you. Are you still at Rochester? I am at the University of Rochester. Okay. And just a couple closing comments here from you, if I could get them. Have you noticed a difference in students today versus students when you started teaching? Yes, but that's unique to Rochester because we have tightened up our standards and our admission standards are much, much more demanding now than they were when I started teaching. And I sat in the classroom. Um, Obviously, that's happened some places and not others. Any other generalizations, though? I mean, is there something you can point to? And I tend to think that all generations end up being more like the generations that came before them than they would like to think. Well, again, this millennial group, though, they really describe themselves and are being described as completely different than anything else. But I still think they're going to want to get married, have children, pay for their college, be able to eat and things like that. I expect so. You know, again, the differences that I see are idiosyncratic. Not only have we tightened up our standards, but we've also tremendously expanded our international scope so that when I started teaching, my students were all American. Now they're 40 percent American. So I'm seeing a very different population, and that makes it hard for me to pick out what are the effects of our admissions changes and what are the effects of bigger social changes. Spoken like a rational economist. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Where can people go to find out more about you and your work? They can go to, there are a couple places. They can go to outsmartaneconomist.com, outsmartaneconomist.com, or they can go to my blog, thebigquestions.com, and they'll find information, not just on the new book, but on all the older books that you so kindly recommended as well. I forgot about The Big Questions. That is a book. The Big Questions is a book, and my blog is thebigquestions.com. Okay, we'll send people there, and we'll send them out to pick up Can You Outsmart an Economist, but I'll go ahead and give you the spoiler. The answer is no, you can't, but you should try it anyway, because it'll be a good exercise. Stephen, thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks so much for this. That was Steven Landsberg. You can find him at landsberg.com. You'll find that in the show notes. You'll also find his book, Can You Outsmart an Economist 100 Plus Puzzles to Train Your Brain? It is available now and it is a lot of fun. So do go pick the book up and check that out. I'm Anthony Anarino, and you can find me at thesalesblog.com, where I write and publish every day. You can find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino, and you can also find me at the Outbound Conference, which is outboundconference.com. That will be April 23rd to 26th at the World Congress Center in Georgia in the beautiful Georgia Ballroom. 
a magnificent room and a giant room where a lot of salespeople and sales leaders are going to show up to listen to me, to listen to Jeb Blunt, to listen to Mark Hunter, to listen to Mike Weinberg, to listen to Jeffrey Gittimer and Colleen Francis and Andrea Waltz and Bob Berg and Waldo Waldman. The main stage is a spectacle and it's something that you don't want to miss. So go check out outboundconference.com. You do not want to miss it. And until next time, I'll see you in the arena. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.